peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome back to the program. Not uh, always awesome to come to this intersection of race and sports, but we're happy to be here with you. I am Jason Jackson. That is Kirk Morrison. A little bit later in the program, uh, we will pause down from the heaviness coming from the land of lakes and probably felt all over this nation, by the way. Uh, but Bob Kendrick is the president and historian at the Negro League Baseball Museum, a brand new podcast coming uh, to all of us here on Sirius XM. We'll discuss that. Uh, our very good friend and outstanding broadcaster from Minneapolis, uh, played at the University of Minnesota, covers the Lynx and uh, the Timberwolves, does college and high school stuff, basically broadcasts yeah. everything in Minnesota. <laughs> Leah Olson will, will join us to talk about the story that we start off with, uh, with the shooting, fatal police shooting of Dante Wright, 20-year-old black man during a traffic stop this weekend in Minnesota. And I, I first have to tell on myself, uh, Kirk, because uh, when it first hit me, and now I'm realizing more and more as I've thought about it for almost a week, um, it's a numbing that's now hitting. And I even saw the people and was so impressed with how quickly they got to the streets to make it known that this stuff has got to stop, even as it's not stopping. To have that energy, to have that dedication um, to that wonderful right that we have to gather and say this isn't going to be right and gather the attention of everyone in that space, that state, this nation, um, was admirable. I couldn't get my own energy there. It has nothing to do with this location or this incident or even... Um, the murder trial going on in Minneapolis right now, and, and God bless the family of, of Mr. Wright and, and, and his soul. But man, I, I, I need to see something sweeping, and I need to see it now, or I'm kind of buried under the despair of hopelessness. Yeah, it's a lot, man. It is. And uh, that's why I'm so, I'm glad for this platform that we both have, Jax, that we get a chance to talk about this stuff. You know, um, it's something that I know I can't talk a lot about it in my own home because I have young kids that don't understand, right? And how many times are we reaching out to a, a friend of ours to say, hey, man, let's talk about what's going on in our country. We're, we're trying to get caught up on, you know, did you get a vaccine or not? You know, how are you feeling? Are you sick? How are you like, we got so much other stuff going on. Then you have this and it weighs down on you a little bit because I, I truly believe that you know, throughout the election process, I was starting to see some change. I was starting to see different, you know, policing agencies take full responsibility on things that have happened in the past and how they can fix things, how they can fix not only the thoughts that they um, have or just the people's thoughts in the community about how can we have a better relationship with the communities and the police. And just when you think things are getting better, you're seeing the Derek Chauvin trial play out. 
and you're hoping that justice will be served. And then boom, it just hits you. And I think it, it's to your point though, Jax, it was something that we were in disbelief for a minute. Like, you know what I mean? You, you're in disbelief. And when you're in disbelief, you, it takes you a minute. It takes you a minute to relax, take a breath and just say, you know what? <sighs> it's still not where we want it to be. Kirk, perfectly put, as we were coming on the air today, uh, Kim Porter, uh, the 26-year department veteran that shot and killed uh, Dante Wright, uh, word came down from the local prosecutor that she would be charged with second-degree manslaughter. Now, she has turned in her badge, her chief has turned in her badge. Um, I feel like my gut, as I've gotten my feet under me on this topic and really are locked in on the how do we change all this madness? Um, it's not dilly-dallying. Number one, when issuing justice. Uh, both of those individuals um, needed to be removed. And I'll give them credit for removing themselves if credit's necessary in that spot. Um, but while I'm glad that what usually feels like molasses in the process of getting these things nailed down, moved a little quicker than usual here. I'm still concerned about where do we get the change? Where's the origin of something different and something new? And I know that's, that we gotta get into who we're bringing into the police force. And I know that Officer Porter been there for 26 years. Yeah. How do you get into a moment of so much panic and fear that you don't know what weapon you drew? Yeah, you know, I think that's where the police reform has to come in. Um, I think you have to keep refining your tools, right? I think me and you and the industry that we're in, we're always still constantly fighting to get better. And we've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, or and, you're out. <laughs> or you're out, you're right. You yeah. know, there's this, there's this thing where we're always trying to gain more, that 1%, right? Me and you, we always joke around, you know, if there's an opportunity, uh, you know, more income, whatever it may be, hey, sign us up. Then we, we, we're ready for it. You know what I mean? Just because we know it does give us the opportunity to go out and, and, and still, you know, refine who we are um, in, in broadcasting and in, in talking and in interviewing, whatever it may be. Is is that something that police need to do as well? Do they need to go through a recourse or retraining? I don't believe being a police officer is just like riding a bike. Like, oh, once you get, once you do it once, you, you always know how to do it. I think it's still something that you have to look back in the mirror because not only do times change, communities change, the way we look at situations now change. And so what may have been okay in the late 90s early 2000s, now we get to 2020, 2021, situations are handled differently. People will grow up differently. I know some people, Jack said, I know I can't joke around with because they it can escalate really quickly. There's other guys who I could joke around with and it's all, it bounces right off of them. So you don't know who you're dealing with a lot of times. And I think that's what I'm seeing now that I want officers, uh, police, to have to do a bit of reform for all police officers, not just a couple of bad apples. The, the whole department needs to be reformed and people have to go back through counseling and, and, um, and schooling, whatever it may be. There should be a mandate that has to happen for everybody to go back through a training, whether it's every five years, 
you know, something to where you're refining the tools of what it means to be an officer. Before we have some listeners who may fall in a different line of thinking, and there may even be officers, law enforcement officials listening to the program, um, but like what we usually talk about, maybe aren't feeling this today. Um, I think you nailed it. None of us get by without keeping up. None of us right. get by without training. None of us get by with not learning the new software, right? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, so times have changed. Yeah. People change. Law enforcement has to change. Why is everything seemingly in these cases, right? So let's keep everything narrowed to what we know. Yes. But we've come to find out this type of force was entirely unnecessary. Right. There's one job in our nation where it's legal to use lethal force. And so when there is such an elite existence with such heavy responsibility, I want it to be laden with training. I want it to be laden and weighted with the latest um, mental health awareness. Absolutely. The right tactics, man. I was just tongue in cheek with my sons. We had a couple of police, police officers that lived on our street and would roughhouse with us. So, you know, 70s are a little bit different. Right. They, they got crazy when they put hands <laughs> on other kids. Matter of fact, uh, it was welcomed, you know. Okay. Yeah. And I remember these cats. I mean, they were grown men, right? But still, they had these little pressure points or the way that they could grab your wrist. And it was like, oh my God, like, I <laughs> have super strength. I know they're still trained. In that hand-to-hand -hand dynamic, I know for sure because uh, our organization is in, in collaboration now, and I and I encourage every team in every city to fund this type of training. Right, just reconnecting policing with the people. Yeah, those protect and serve. Right, that's the motto. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, and, it doesn't feel like protection or service sometimes. I think you hit it. It doesn't feel that way. It just. You know, and I, I know we're talking about what's going on in Minnesota, but I, I was deeply disturbed about what happened. Um, uh, I believe it was in Virginia last week. Um, the military veteran, uh, Karan Nazario, you know, a man who's uh, in uniform, person of color in uniform in his car. And yet he was treated. He was talked down to as if. Um, he didn't even exist. And we're talking about a person who served our country in uniform, like in uniform. I said, come on, man. Like it, it's just another situation in which I say, come on, we, we, how, why are we not past this? Yeah. And, and, and I know, you know, sometimes you, you feel like, oh, a person is a threat or you're objecting my authority. Like the authority should be is understand the situation. The man has his hands up and saying, excuse me, what am I being pulled over for? Why is this going on? And why is that conversation so threatening? Yes. <laughs> oh, you're threatening me? Oh, you don't want... And it just... We should be able to have a conversation. Correct. You know, and I, and I get it. Look, I understand what cops do. I understand that they put their lives on the line for the safety of the community um, and the people around them. I, I totally get that. I am not going against that part of the job. But there are certain aspects of the job where I feel that you need to come in um, with a level mind, a level head, and not 
be on 10. I think that's what happens is that be the de-escalator. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Yeah. That's what, that's what the job I think should entail is that how do we get from a 10 and bring it down to a five, to a four, all the way to a one. Right. I think that's what I would hope. But the more and more we just see the situations that are going on, Jax, it's just that it was tough. I think that's, what's been tough with me with Dante Wright is that I thought we were moving past that. And as I see the pictures of what's going on in Minnesota, I'm just quickly brought back to what happened last May with, with, with George Floyd. Like I'm literally those emotions that I thought had left my body. Like I'm watching them again. I'm saying they came right on back. I lined this up with what the CDC decided along with some other municipalities with the, the Johnson and Johnson, um, Jansen vaccine. Mm-hmm. They've got six, a handful of cases. Millions of people that got it perfectly fine, but Correct. a handful of cases, that's enough to give them pause. Mm. Cool with that. Because what's rough is when you're one of the six. Yeah. Right? There's millions and millions of people that got their one dose. They're so fired up. I wanted it. Now I can't get it. So I'm going to do the double stuff uh, this week. As a matter of fact, I'm excited. I've finally been released. <laughs> I'll, get my, yeah. I'll get my vaccine. And... Uh, and I, I liken it to this. There are millions of encounters between people and police every single day we hear nothing about yeah. because they, they went well. And there's some that we don't hear about that are as deadly as this. One, one is too many. And we need to have that type of sensitivity. And I feel like there's just this type of fatigue, unfortunately, in the majority in our society, where if they don't get on board with some of this too, it just kind of gets, and I'm, I don't mean the pun at all, but I hear it coming out my mouth now, it just gets whitewashed. Yeah. And it's just another thing of the day. What's the next story on the news? No, no, we, we, we hit pause here. We hit pause and we try to have the right, fair and just conversation with officers that do this job wonderfully every day, every week, every year for decades, and those who absolutely should not be on the force. No, there's some that just they, that need to be need to be done with, move away, um, and we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Uh, like I said, I'm still kind of still uh, still taking it in, you know, mm-hmm. and I know that golf supporter has you know resigned and gave their badge up, but. It still doesn't. It still doesn't do it justice yet, and no, so there's yet. another case that we got to watch again. It's just, it's you know, it brings up a case of like a, a guy by the name of Oscar Grant. You know, where I grew up in Oakland, California, they made a movie about Fruitvale Station. You know, about oh, a yeah. kid who was on on the Bart Station, and same thing, cop discharging a gun, but he thought he had his taser. It's just. I mean, my five-year-old son can tell you the difference between a real gun and a fake gun. I mean, taser or not taser. I mean, it's just hard to wrap your mind around sometimes. We're going to get back to this issue uh, in a little bit. I'm so excited to have this one of the stars of Minnesota basketball. She played at the University of Minnesota. She covers the Lynx and the Timberwolves still does some college and high school work in the area. Leah Olson will join us. She's an activist on top of being an athlete, a broadcaster, and the mother, by the way, of athletes. And so we'll get a real good feel of the pulse of what's happening in Minneapolis from both fronts uh, coming up in a little bit. But when we come back, what a delight. 
always enjoy listening to Bob Kendrick. Bob is the president and historian at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Got a new podcast, all in connection with us here at SiriusXM. You'll find it every Thursday on the app. It'll sit there for you whenever you want. Uh, also, wherever you find podcasts, just search Black Diamonds. He's going to give us a full dose of that particular podcast and everything else going on at the museum when we come back here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. And we continue here on Forward Progress. It's Jason Jackson. It's Kirk Morrison. We're so happy to have Bob Kendrick with us. Uh, he has a brand new project. Sirius XM and the Negro League Baseball Museum are presenting a new podcast series. Love the title, Black Diamonds, hosted by Bob himself, the museum president and historian. Uh, the podcast will showcase the history of the Negro Leagues, highlighting the players, people, and events that shaped them, as well as spotlighting the league's achievements and innovations during a time of segregation and inequality. So new episodes are going to release every Thursday on the SiriusXM app and everywhere you get podcasts. We welcome Bob Kendrick to the program. Great to have you. Always great to visit with you. Bob, walk us through how this project came to pass and how much fun you're having uh, putting it together as you get started and underway. Well, it, it, it's been an amazing process to see kind of unfold. And the team over at Sirius has been amazing because, honestly, I had been on the other side of so many podcasts. I'm usually on the answer side. And, and so now I get to move over on the Q side and, and of course, add a perspective, share stories in the process as we connect the dots with the Negro Leagues and, and how do we make it relevant in the lives of those who will be listening and hearing about the Negro Leagues life before the very first time. And, and so it, it, it's still all a little surreal for me because it happened pretty quickly. And but when the guy, when the, guy, the team over at Sirius approached me about this idea, we think you're a pretty good storyteller, and the this long form opportunity to bring these stories to life, and we'll help you and guide you through the process. Uh, I was like, okay, I don't really need any more to do. I got plenty to do already. I really don't <laughs> need one more thing to do. But then you think about again in my world here as leading this museum. It's all about relevancy. How do I make this history relevant to what's happening in the lives of people today? And it really was a no-brainer for us to, to move into this kind of partnership. And hopefully people will enjoy this podcast. You know, it's been fun as we've started working on this to this point. And I'll get to talk to a lot of friends of mine, people I've known in the industry for years. And, and we just kind of chatted up and talk and bring out these parallels that some of them are aware of, others are not. And so I think it's going to be a lot of fun, though. You know, I think one of the things is that when you have uh, sort of this history of the Negro Leagues and how amazing that it was, the players that played and all the records and things like that. Mm -hmm. When you think about today, right now, currently, how do you still get more of those stories? How do you continue to hear some of those legacies where may, some guys may have passed along and yet you have legacies of their family members and grandsons and granddaughters and those people who also have a part of that story, even though they didn't play. How, how are you also getting those stories? 
you know, Kirk, that's one of the biggest challenges, man. We knew that from the onset when we started this museum now almost 31 years ago, that it was literally a race against time. And, and when I say that, you know, what I refer to is that the people who made this history, it wasn't a matter of if, it was simply a matter of when they were all going to be gone. And even the people who saw them play, you know, we were going to lose them as well. And so it makes the museum a such a vital resource so that we don't lose these stories. And you're right, to connect with those who are extensions of the story become even more important, whether that is family, whether that is both African-American and Hispanic ball players, so that they understand where their place is in this game and how they got to be a part of this game at the major league level. So to me, all of that is part of it. And, and I think we'll get to do some of that through Black Diamonds and, and continuing to share these stories. I don't ever want these stories to be lost. You know, even when someone subsequently comes to replace me, I just hope that the stories don't die. You know, and, and, and that's probably one of my biggest fears. And so perhaps this kind of project provides a little bit of perpetuity for these stories. You know, and, and, and I get to share so many of the stories that I heard directly from those who lived them. The Buck O'Neills and the Monty Irvins and the Minnie Minosos, the Ernie Bankses of the world. You know, I, I got to spend time with these incredible human beings and, and hearing them talk about the joy that they had. You know, a lot of people want to paint the picture of the sorrow of the challenges of the times. All I heard these legendary athletes talk about is the sheer joy that they had playing in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, the times were difficult. They just never dwelled on it. But yeah, you, you're right. How do we keep these stories and, and continue to connect the dots? And, and, and that's still something that we're working on as an institution to this very day. Negro League Baseball Museum President and Historian Bob Kendrick with us here on Forward Progress. I'm so glad you're in this space, in this podcast platform, uh, because the very first link I'm going to send is to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Their, their, their young star, uh, Anthony Edwards, was asked the other day if he knew anything about the man who's trying to buy the team. Now, he said he knew who Alex Rodriguez was from a, a, a person who's about to buy the Timberwolves, but right. did not know him as a baseball player. Uh, we got to reach these young folks. We got to get them. He was born in 2021. I don't care. He was born in. I mean, sorry. He was born in 2001, man. He was a great baseball player in high school. He was born in 2001. Get with me on this. If I can't get A-Rod to this kid, I know I can't get him Josh Gibson. So we are definitely going to send him the, the entire season to get him squared away. Is that all right with you? That's all right with me. How are we doing with young fit folks in this area? Overall, I don't mean to pick on Anthony, but uh, as, as we well know, um, when, when, when I was a young, play, a young player, I mean a really young player, in the 70s, what a beautiful time it was to look at baseball and see the most black faces we've probably seen uh, in 100 years in, in the actual game itself. Uh, we've dwindled down below 10% uh, in the league right now. Um, I assume we can use some of this history to spark it as well as getting kids out fields and 
gloves and balls and bats in hand. Hope so. We hope so. You know, to me, Jason, that is part of the museum's role as well. You know, we have a mission to preserve and celebrate and educate the public about this piece of baseball and Americana. But we also have a vested interest in wanting to see urban kids play this game, help them understand exactly where their place and what their place is in this game, that we have a proud legacy in this sport. And it's important that you see yourself in that light. And so when they come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, guys, they see people who look just like them, who played this game as well as anybody ever played it. But not only did they play the game, they owned teams and they managed teams and they were coaches and traveling secretaries and team physicians. They fulfilled every role that you could fulfill within the business of this game. And so our sport is perhaps the most aspirational of all the other major sports. You really have to see yourself and, and to want to emulate what you see uh, and if you're going to play this game. And, and so we felt like we played a role in this whole ascent to try and get kids excited about this game and add a level of cool to this game. <laughs> yeah, no, you got, we got to add some cool to this game. They think the game is slow. They don't understand the game. And hopefully by attaching everything that went with the Negro Leagues. Because, you know, they just played the game a little differently. They, they, it was brash and bold and daring. And, and so maybe that will get them excited. And, and once we can get those kids playing the game, you know what will happen? We'll see that style of play return. Yeah, it'll happen. It, it will happen. And the pace of the game will change again just as it did when Jackie came over from the Kansas City Monarchs to the Brooklyn Dodgers. The pace of the game, when Jackie took the field, it took off. <laughs> you know? And yeah. so, yeah, and, and the National League, by and large, the pace of the game excelled. You know, I remember hearing the late, great Bob Gibson speak of the American League because the American League was so slow to sign black players. They really didn't want to sign black players. They were very slow signing black players. And Bob Gibson says they thought the American League was a place where old ball players went to die. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. You know, you know, I want to bring this up because I felt like, um, you know, baseball currently is missing something, Major League Baseball. And when I think back to the Negro Leagues, for me, um, as a young baseball player, I thought of the same things that you're talking about, the flash. Uh, they went out there and they put on a show. It just wasn't a baseball game. It was it was entertainment. It was a show. But also, too, it was the catchy uniforms. Like, the oh, uniforms yeah. looked different. It yeah. was like, man, well, like, I like this. Yeah. I feel like baseball right now currently is missing that aspect of its game that draws people in. So sometimes it, it, I know they want to keep it traditional. Yeah. But I felt like that's what made the Negro League so special and people would show up because when I felt like when I and I'm just hopefully I'm just thinking I'm, I'm dreaming because if I did go there, I felt like when people left a Negro League game, they felt full. Like I got my oh, money's no. worth. No, and no. I don't know if I, I don't know if I get that same satisfaction watching today's baseball from what I saw you know, from the Negro we, League. We got it here in Kansas City in 2014 and 2015 when our Kansas City Royals who were probably the last team to play a Negro League style of play. 
Mm. You know, when guys were stealing bases and great pitching and great defense, they're putting the ball in play. It was an emphasis on getting the ball in play, creating action, forcing mistakes. That was Negro League's baseball. Now, mind you, you got to have great athletes to play that way. Right. You yeah. Yeah, you got to have some thoroughbreds to be able to play that way. Right. And, and, and so, but you're absolutely right. The late, great Buck O'Neill would say, you couldn't go to the concession stand, Kirk, because you might miss something that you ain't never seen before. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah. They, were giving to, they were giving it to you. They, they knew that this game was entertainment at its highest level. And the other thing that you touched on, I tell people all the time, what we love about baseball is its tradition. Yes. What has hurt baseball is its tradition. Yeah, yeah. So baseball, the other sports have simply outmarketed us. They've made that made the appeal level such that you know you can't you want to be like LeBron. You want to be like these big stars because they've never been afraid to put their stars out front. Right. They could take a page from the Negro Leagues because the Negro Leagues were never afraid to put their stars out front either. It was Satchel Page and the Kansas City Monarchs. Yeah. And it's Ruth <laughs> Foster's Chicago American Giants. Oscar Charleston and the Indianapolis ABCs, you know, and so we like stars. We, we've always loved stars. Right. And, and, and these sports are star driven. And, and I think baseball can take a page from the Negro Leagues. Bob, we got a couple minutes before we uh, got to let you run. But as you put these uh, podcasts together, give us the one name that you like to stump the most intelligence, the, the most locked in, the, the most trivia-based Negro League savant, and they go, who? And, uh, and, you then can, and then you can roll it out. Give us a little something uh, that we can we can crush our friends with. You know, there are a few of those guys, but the guy that I like to tout quite a bit because it speaks to the inclusive nature of the Negro Leagues is the great Martin DeHigo, El Maestro. The master, <laughs> fellas, because he could do it all. Played all nine positions, played all nine of them well. He is the only baseball player in the history of our sport to be enshrined into five different countries' baseball halls of fame. He's in the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown. Uh-huh. You know, six three, six four, movie star, good looks, did everything. And here at the museum on our field of legends, where we have the life-size statues, he's at the plate, you know, batting. Because in one year in the Mexican League, he wins the pitching title. He goes 19-2 and two with an 0.990 ERA. <laughs> the sucker hits 387 that same season and won the batting title. <laughs> uh, real quick, I apologize. I know I was going to let you run there, but uh, Negro League stat um, coming into the mainstream. When does it actually hit and what's the meaning of that? Well, we're still waiting on the time frame for the actual integration of these the statistical data into the annals of Major League Baseball history. But I, I'm excited and not as much about the stats. The stats are what they are. For me, they'll be contextual. You know, you can never base the Negro Leagues just merely on stats. But what I am honored about is the, the acknowledgement, the recognition, and some might say the atonement for righting a wrong. These leagues were as major as any league, and, and they should have been recognized so well before now 
but I commend Commissioner Manfred and his team for doing what others could have done, but failed to do so. And so we are tremendously honored by what was truly a historical announcement in December of last year. And I tell people all the time, Major League Baseball guys did in one day what we've been trying to do here at the Negro Leagues Museum for the last 30 years, and that's to rewrite the pages of American History Book. Now, granted, they did it by rewriting their own history, but I think most of us will agree that if you know the history of baseball, you pretty well know the history of this country. And the, the history of the Negro Leagues is an important part of the history of this game and an important part of the history of this nation. Bob Kendrick, president and historian at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, new podcast, Black Diamonds, dropping every Thursday on the SiriusXM app. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you, brother. Guys, thanks so much for having me. You got it. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we turn our attention back uh, to Minnesota. Uh, Minneapolis to be specific and everything going on there. And to do that, you turn to someone who was a wonderful athlete there, a great broadcaster there, a mother raising athletes there. Uh, and that's Leah Olson. When we come back here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Forward Progress continues and we return back to our top story. No better person to speak to, but someone knows the area through and through. Uh, Leah Olson played basketball at the University of Minnesota, covers basketball, uh, WNBA and NBA in Minneapolis, um, is a mother in that space. I want to tap into some of that. And Leah, we welcome you to Forward Progress. I'm going to talk to you about what I told Kirk at the top of the show. Um, I had to check myself on this particular incident. Okay. I find myself, I found myself, I gave myself a day to get my act together, um, fatigued by these stories. Yes. And I was ashamed of that feeling initially. And then I was like, I'm allowed to be human. And then I turned this incident as we probably all should. I put my sons in that car. And that allows you to maintain the proper disgust, the proper outrage, the proper calls and consistent calls for something else. And unfortunately, I feel like we're at a point, I imagine you all feel it in the land of 10,000 lakes more than anybody else, um, that, 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 enough, that enough of enough is, uh, is not even the right way to even phrase it. That's why I'm hesitating. Um, it just... Um, I, I know why people are in the streets. Let's leave it at that. Yes. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And um, I wish it was for more upbeat news, but this is what's happening here right now. And it's, it is heavy. It's very, um, people feel weighted down right now. And the, you know, just going through a difficult year um, after George Floyd's murder and also being in lockdown because of the pandemic kind of had everybody in a weird kind of stressed out state anyways. And then to be sitting right in the middle of the trial of George Floyd's case and then to have a new one happen, what makes you realize is that, um, well, we haven't learned anything and we haven't changed in a year. And 
um, this continues to happen. And, it, and so the words start sounding flat and the conversations don't feel quite right because I will say this after George Floyd was killed, I had some very hopeful moments because I've seen some movements in Minnesota that I have not seen before, in particular from corporate America. But I've seen some things that I've never seen in my life that people are trying to make change. And so for this to happen again, it was kind of just this it was it was heartbreaking um and the mood is just very very heavy yeah, that, that's what I wanted to ask you, because you've been there, you've seen it, and you did see some of the change. And I, and I felt it, some of the change all the way here on the West Coast. And yet quickly, we're reminded that we're right back kind of where we were a year ago. So for you, but to see uh, in Minnesota all the different changes, and I feel like people didn't really know. Uh, just what Minnesota truly has in terms of the social justice issues that may have been there for many, many years. I think just the George Floyd brought something and now we're like, wait, they have that going on in Minnesota. Like, yeah, it's going on everywhere. Minnesota is not immune to it as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think for a long time, we thought that we were because we didn't necessarily have a whole lot of things going on. And I went, my son, who is 20 years old, we sent him to go to Georgia to Emory for college. And I know people here were a little concerned about, you know, you're going to send them to the South. Is that safe? Is that okay? And, um, and it turns out, you know, we just had to be just as worried here as we did there. So I do, um, but what I, what I saw after George Floyd was that the good people in Minnesota who really didn't know, which I think that's another conversation, but that was hard too to understand. Like people didn't understand what was going on with black men and police officers in this country. And I just assumed everyone knew it, but maybe didn't want to invest their time in it. What I'm learning is people really didn't understand um, how they were being treated. I guess you chose not to understand that. Um, so now, um, but then what I saw was those people coming together, having difficult conversations. Um, you know, I saw the teams make moves um, to, um, you know, stop games and do things and have conversations that is not welcome by everybody here in Minnesota. So, you know, there's, there is some pushback is the people I'm surrounded by um, are really positive about some of the moves they're seeing, but there's lots of people out there who are saying, really, should the NBA be doing this? Is this really, um, should sports be involved in some of the stuff that we're seeing? So there is still quite a bit of pushback happening. Lee Olson with us here on Forward Progress. Uh, as we were coming on to tape this show on Wednesday, uh, we learned that Kim Porter, who has turned in her badge uh, after 26 years as a veteran on the Brooklyn Center Police Department's force, uh, it will be charged with manslaughter. Um, we, we knew prior to that, that along with Porter, that, uh, uh, that the Brooklyn Center Chief Tim Gannon also turned in his badge. How were those two things received? How is this third element helping perspective at all in the sense that adjudication and looking to justice and, and the way that it works um, oftentimes solely and sometimes, um, let me go back to oftentimes disappointingly. Um, yeah. Does any of this check any boxes for anything in town? Um, well, for me, it doesn't feel like it does, but I think the steps that they took were the proper, correct steps. Um, I don't know so much about the chief of police because I don't know his background, but I think everyone was um, calling for them to fire Officer Porter 
and um, and then she ended up resigning. So I think one of the things that was learned from George Floyd was that um, our chief of police, Arredondo, really made some quick and swift moves that let people knew, know that he wasn't going to wait. Oftentimes, um, the police will wait to fire the police to find out more information. And George Floyd, they um, made those moves swiftly. Um, so I think that expectation now has changed and people want to see people fired immediately and things happening. Um, and so I think for the most part that that was appropriate. Again, I don't know anything about the, the chief of police from Brooklyn Center, so I don't know what his role may be um, as far as his leadership, et cetera. One of the things that I looked up and was like, I saw Rethink the Wind, something that you found it back in 2015, and it talks about um, an organization to preserve the fun in youth sports while teaching kids how to apply lessons learned in sports. And me and Jax have been kind of talking off, off air a little bit about the younger generation of basketball players. We were talking about, um, you know, young players who just want to go out and play basketball or just sports in general, but yet they have this weight of what's going on outside of sports where people are asking them to choose a side. Where are you at? How are you going to go out and, and be an activist? Where some kids are like, I just want to play sports. I, yeah. How do how do how do you how do you I guess yeah. mold them or teach them how to be able to differentiate the two of playing sport, but then also being able to understand what's going on in your own community. Well, I think first and foremost, it's really important for us to protect our young kids and understand like we're bringing through a, a group of young athletes and young people in general who have a, a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression because of the issues that they're dealing with. And um, it's the first time that we've seen athletes at such young ages show some of the signs of um, anxiety, depression that is usually reserved for only like perhaps professional athletes. And so there definitely is a weight and a burden. Not all of that is around social media. Some of it is how we're presenting sports to kids. But there's this extra piece that we're um, putting on athletes that I think is um, I think it's really appropriate for our professional athletes. And I really love what I'm seeing in the WNBA and the NBA and with all the sports leagues stepping up. I do worry about the younger athletes because I want to make sure that we protect their health and make sure, you know, there's just a burden that you see on this younger generation. I see it in my own kids. Um, they have a lot on their shoulders and, um, and although, you know, I think they're going to have to take it on because this is the society that we're presenting them. I hope we as the leaders and um, right now can um, give them the tools to protect themselves as they work through these issues. Lee Olson with us here on Forward Progress, one of the many jobs she has. I love multiple streams of income, Leah. Don't worry about that. Right? Oh, we all do. <laughs> Come on, hit me more than the first and the 15th. I need more. Uh, it's covering the Timberwolves. What's radiating from them? And I guess there's a bunch of Lynx players in town now as well as the draft is coming and workouts are going to begin. Um, what is the message that they're trying to uh, send out? How are they feeling themselves about this? Lots of overwhelm. You know, um, Rebecca Brunson, who is a former WNBA great, works on the Timberwolves broadcast. She'll be broadcasting tonight. And um, you can just see a lot of sadness um, and a lot of pain. Um, Josh Okogie for the 
Wolves has talked about that he will continue to use his platform. He's really disappointed in what he's seen in that we just have gone through this and we just have had this conversation and yet it's happening again. And he's he's trying to figure out what's next. Like if we're having these conversations, if this isn't enough, then what do we need to be doing? And, um, you know, Chris Finch, the head coach, kind of addressed in his press conference just that he's doing a lot of listening and supporting and um but can the heaviness i I keep using that term but it's just so fitting because it's just what it is it's like you're trying to get up for a game but you're feeling weighted down by what's um the environment is providing us and so um but so i think i think overwhelm to me seems to be the word that um i would best describe it with is um you know in the middle of a trial that everyone's you know, kind of hanging on the edge of their seats to see how this turns out and then to see how the community is going to react based on how this turns out. Um, to put this in the mixture seems like it's it's just too much. Yeah, that was my next question, is that we are in the next couple of days, weeks, in terms of getting a decision um, in that case against Derek Chauvin. And I'm saying, regardless of what may happen with the case, I believe he will serve jail time. But I, I think ultimately, you know, what's the sentiment after it's over? You know, how are we supposed to react? Because we've seen it. This man will pay for, I think, his mistake, uh, murdering a man in George Floyd. But after it's over, like, what's next? Where do we move on from here? Yeah, that's kind of what I think, too. And I think um, I think we have to really start looking at the laws and the way that we're policing, um, because I think it's really starting with why people are getting pulled over um, first and foremost. And I think that's one of the things that we'll see here with the Dante Wright case that just happened is, you know, why people are getting pulled over for these issues. And is that necessary? And is that just harassment and just a way to get things escalated to that next level. And so I think we we as a public need to be educated on where the spaces that we, what laws need to be changed, what um, what is it in our court systems that we might not quite understand is that like, um, that there's, there's different ways that we can, oh, I don't know, get, um, get help for our community. And I don't think we're educated enough as a community to know what those spaces are. And so I think so much of it is through the legal system and actually how we police. And so I'm hoping that we can find, I think, I think the emotional um, release of protesting is important and it gives people a voice. And then I think it leaves a void because people aren't sure what that next step is. And um, so I think that has to be our work is how can we even stop the pullover from happening? What What's happening in that space that's creating this? From ESPN's WNBA coverage, the Lynx, the Timberwolves, so much more in Minnesota. Leah Olson, thank you so much for the time and perspective uh, on a day where you have to get back to it, too. So we, we appreciate you taking the time for us. Thank you so much. We also want to thank Bob Kendrick for swinging by, uh, getting us all together on Black Diamonds, which debuts this week on the Sirius XM app. Always great to have you with us for our producer, Pernell Brown, and my partner, Kirk Morrison. I'm Jason Jackson. We'll talk to you next time.